Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With a record number of women in cabinet positions, it may not be a league of gentlemen, but will the government's new front bench be a Champions League or fail to score with voters? Plus, we take a look at the way polls are reported, wonder whether the new government will deliver constitutional change for Indigenous communities, learn some lessons from UK Labor and its Brexit shambles, and go searching for the elusive shy Tory. That's all on this week's Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, coming to you from the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University. And joining me as always today is Dr. Maria Taflaga. Hello, everyone. Great to have you here. And of course, another couple of excellent guests, Dr. Jill Shepard. Hi there, Jill. G'day, Mark. And Professor Frank Bongiorno. Hi, Hi Mark. Well, look, here we are. We're... um, what are we, uh, sort of uh, more than a week now since the election, the, the things have taken shape. The ministry's been announced. Scott Morrison, of course, is the Victoria's Prime Minister, and he's now, uh, on, on the recent weekend, outlined his front bench. And, of course, Labor is now, you know, rapidly reconfiguring itself in the wake of uh, a defeat that it just simply hadn't countenanced. So let's look, uh, I, I guess, first at the government side, um, Scott Morrison's cabinet. Jill, do you see any surprises there? I well, I was genuinely surprised that Sinodinus and Fifield are leaving. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, they're they're two guys who both really I would have thought had a legislative future in front of them. Um, otherwise, not massively surprised. Susan Lee into environment, I think, is a pretty good. Uh, appointment, Bridget McKenzie into agriculture, that there's all this sort of speculation around Bridget McKenzie that she's potentially a bit of a lightweight. And I wonder how much of that is just... Sexism? She's a a reasonably attractive woman who is a good media performer. Um, So that's going to be really interesting. Uh, It's it's fun to have no skin in the game, really. And that's a real luxury that we have here, right? That none of this will affect my day-to-day life. So it's going to be fun to sit back and watch. Yeah, well, it's interesting that, uh, that they're, they're very good points you make there, particularly about Bridget McKenzie, because I think she's actually grown in the role. I mean, I have to say, as a as a political journalist in my former capacity, I had some doubts about her depth as a mm. politician when she first started. But I think you're right to say that she's quite a good media performer. I think she's got better as uh, as a defender and uh, advocate of uh, of the of government policy as well, and of her party's particular position. So. It's going to be interesting to see how she goes in that agriculture portfolio. I did hear a few few murmurs yesterday from people saying she's not herself from the regions, which is uh, you know it's almost like saying uh, you know if you're a, if you're a priest you don't believe in God. Um, well, where is she from? The, I first met her in I think oh, 2004 when she was running for the seat of Macmillan. Yeah, which that's pretty regional. I think it's because she lives in Eltham. 
or somewhere like oh, that. Oh, okay. No, no, it might not be Eltham. It's somewhere actually down near St Kilda. That's um, what Victorian Nats do, though. They move to the city. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's there are demands, of course, when you're a politician in terms of travel and everything else. What about you, Marie? Did you see any um, uh, surprises there? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really interesting what happened with the Victorians. So, of course, um, we had a few promotions. For example, Angus Taylor went into uh, cabinet. I think he retained all of the same stuff. And Michael Sucker returned to cabinet, who was a, a Dutton backer, um, uh, back into the fold. And uh, Jane Hume, the female Victorian senator, was uh, made a parliamentary secretary. But Tim Wilson who um, really drove the franking credits, mm. uh, like world tour, uh, really rallying. Yeah, um, all, all those parliamentary uh, sort of inquiry uh, uh, sort of hearings where there were people exactly. getting all heated up about it. Exactly. He he, he was overlooked, um, which, which is interesting, but it sort of says something about the nature of um, cabinet selection, which is there are sort of soft quotas. Um, at mm. play, um, you know, in yeah. relation to how many uh, seats the Nats get, which is actually a formula, uh, and they went down one. And also like the number of women, which we can talk about um, in a bit, um, and also uh, factionally. So it seems that Tim Wilson has has lost out on that scale. I think that's really interesting because I hadn't really thought that about Tim Wilson as being someone that was, you know, next in line, I guess, because it's more about patronage, Right. And that's, I think that goes to what you were just saying, Maria. Like it's, it's not about due reward. It's not about, you know, you've, you've been really good. You helped us in the campaign. It's about what can you do for me inside the parliament? And Tim Wilson doesn't really control anything. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, Maria's point's uh, a good one, though, in terms of it's a reminder of, uh, you know, when you think about the election result, the, the Conservatives uh, place a lot of uh, credit for their win on the campaign they ran against Labor's franking credits policy in particular. I mean, one of the Labor people said to me the other day, um, you know, we shouldn't have taken that policy to the election because we actively gave people a reason to vote against us, a pretty odd thing to do in an election campaign. I guess it's easy now with uh, with hindsight yeah. to say, yeah, that was the case. At the time, a lot of people, including myself, I must admit, were sort of praising Labor's boldness uh, in um, presenting policies which, uh, you know, allowed them that redistributive agenda. And it did, you know, it was always known it created some losers. What do you think, Frank? Well, in Wilson's case too, I mean, um, it looked like another kind of abuse of parliamentary process really, didn't it? It did. I mean, it it was, you know, bringing that roadshow around the the country in the way it did. I mean, maybe has a bright, at least immediate future ahead, chairing parliamentary committees of one. He's obviously done such a great job this time round. There'll be more of the same. Um, I suppose as far as the ministry goes, I mean, Ken Wyatt as Indigenous Affairs Minister is is obviously a a major breakthrough and innovation. And and in cabinet too. And and as a member of cabinet as well. I think he's the first. Uh, indigenous Indigenous Affairs Minister yeah. federally, um, so um, that has and been the pretty first well. First Indigenous Cabinet Minister, first Indigenous Cabinet Minister. So it's been very well received, I think, um, publicly. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the, I guess, the PR aspect of of the selection of this ministry has been pretty good, hasn't it? I mean, um, greatly improved gender balance in cabinet, um, White's appointment. Uh, there seems to be some mild rehabilitation of Michaela Cash going on too in all this. I think she's been given extra responsibilities. be interesting to see whether she's more conspicuous than she's been in the last uh, 12 months or so. Um, yeah. But uh, generally and, it's and been – And her WA colleague, the Attorney General, uh, Christian Porter, has picked up industrial relations, which mm. again will be an interesting uh, portfolio to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, what does the government have planned on that front? We'll see. What, what yeah. does it have planned on many fronts? Any fronts, yeah. yeah I guess we can yeah. come to that. Yeah. But I think what Jill has sort of said is it kind of hits the nail on the head, right? Like um, selection into the ministry isn't really about merit um, or not necessarily just about merit, um, you know, that there are these these um, decisions that prime ministers are making about balancing their cabinet and about maintaining internal um, you know, cohesion so they can, mm. they can, they can govern well. And, um, it is interesting that Morrison has chosen to keep seven women in his ministry, which is still the largest number of women, um, ever, which is in the cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, in the ministry, cause some of them are in the outer ministry, right? No, I think it's seven in the cabinet. Seven in the cabinet was no, the I... first thing he said in the press conference. He got up and said, I'm, I've got seven women in the cabinet. And then he went through one by one and forgot Bridget, Bridget McKenzie. So kind of only the deputy leader his... of her party yeah. <laughs> Undem- <laughs> undermined his, uh, initial splash. But no, I mean, he obviously, like on the PR bit that, that Frank pointed um, pointed out, I think, well, maybe that's the thing about Wilson. You couldn't reasonably turn around and say, God, he did a good job with that roadshow on government money. We're going to make him mm-hmm. IR minister or something. You know, we're going to make him assistant treasurer. But also on the PR things, Morrison obviously got it, right? You know, he's talking up the seven women in cabinet. Mm. Yeah, but it sort of goes to the point like, you know, they've effectively got like now this sort of soft quota for women um, at the ministry, but they they don't want uh, to have enforceable targets or quotas at the selection level. And so it does kind of create a challenge for the party to sort of maintain a a, a big enough selection pool to, to select from if they're going yeah, to have precisely. this really Precisely, they don't high... end up with Melissa Price like they did last time who just wasn't at any point up to it. No one thought it at the time and she certainly didn't prove up to it and she's, of course, been punted to the outer ministry. Well, she she may actually despite be... Despite a commitment during the election campaign that she was going to stay in that environment. Very conspicuously in one of the debates, I seem yeah. to yeah, recall. Yeah. What a dumb thing yeah. to do. Yeah. I, there, there Sorry, were, I cut you off. No, no, Jill, go. Women. There were better women though, right? I'm trying to think... <laughs> trying to think about the women who were on the back bench in the last parliament, and I can't because the last parliament feels like years ago. Well, and some of the better ones left, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, people like Jane Prentice, obviously, Kelly O'Dwyer, Julie Bishop, um, you know, uh, there, there were a number of people who left. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Jane Prentice's pre-selection was not protected, notwithstanding that no, some others That others were. were. Yeah, absolutely. There I mean, must I, have been better than Melissa Price. It, it goes to the point that, like, perhaps Melissa well, Price- Anderson for a start. Well, oh, absolutely, yeah. and may have helped her. Well, she she might come into the Senate. I think she's seeking pre-selection now for Mitch Fifield's seat. Yeah, that's right. And I think she's that, uh, she's favoured for that spot. But oh, it, that's good. It goes to the point that um, if you're going to have a soft quota for women in the cabinet and you don't have a sufficient selection pool, it means that you may be putting people into cabinet who haven't yet got the sufficient experience of parliament to be able to do that job well when they get there. And isn't there a problem really if you, the reason you don't have it at the selection level is because of some philosophical, you know, uh, yeah, merit. objection to it? You say, well, Liberal Party doesn't do that because we are, we just don't believe in that. Well, if you don't believe in it, you should be consistent and not believe in it all the way to the top. But they don't talk, they don't call it a quota at the top, right? No, yeah. I think it. I don't know that the Liberals – and I know that there is um, increasing support among lower ranks of the Libs to – um, introduce, you know, at least a target. 
um, philosophically, but also administratively, it would be very, very hard to do in in well in both parties really. Um, easier philosophically in the Labor Party, and they've managed to and, do and it. And easier organisationally as well, because the Labor Party is a national party. It's much whereas, more centralised. Yeah, whereas the Liberal Party is a is a federation. I mean, the state divisions are effectively autonomous. And pre-selections are quite decentralised as well. Um, I, it's hard for me to work out how that would happen without some kind of central uh, – what's the rule in the – I can um, tell you, in Labor. In what Labor. The, what they do is is they have three kind of categories of seats. So they have um, safe seats that they already hold. Uh, they have seats that are winnable, so 45 to 49.9%, and then the rest. And they, uh, they, they require all the state divisions to essentially assign seats to these three categories, and then there's a minimum quota required for women in each of those categories. And if, the, if they do not meet that, the state division doesn't meet that, the national executive just spills every seat in that category <laughs> until they get the number they want. I mean, that's the only way you could do it, right? Yeah, it's a collective what's the clause when, they, when the national executive imposes a candidate? Ah, uh, they parachute him in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But there's there's an uh, it's, it's got a particular name, and that's like you have that done to you, and it's brutal. Um, but the Liberals do this; they did this with Warren Mundine, especially mm. in New South yeah, Wales, and that yeah. was great. Yeah, <laughs> what a good right. decision. <laughs> Let's look at the uh, election. In, in let's let's put it into historical context, Frank Bonchano. I mean, what, now that we know uh, the result, um, what, what do you think of this election in terms of where it fits in against other elections? Yeah, so I mean, I thought Labor would win, um, like a lot of people. Yeah, I um, did too. Yeah. But with the caution, I mean, you'll probably remember we sat on a panel, Mark, um, pretty early in the campaign, and I guess I, I, I said, but you never know. Mm. Um, I wish I'd never know. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I guess the historical point I made was that, you know, since 1910, um, Labor's governed a third of the time, the Coalition's governed two thirds of the time, um, or, you know, wasn't a coalition originally, but either the conser- major conservative party or a coalition has governed two thirds of the time. Um, it's rare for, for for oppositions to to win elections to come mm-hmm. from from true, from yeah. opposition and and win, and so in a sense any party that's trying to do it is running up against history. Um, so that's kind of the, I don't know if you'd call it a structural impediment, but there's some pretty you know deeply layered patterns there, and I guess many of us had seen a lot more movement. Um, particularly at the state level in recent years where you'd had sort of one-term yeah. governments come and go. Um, obviously, you had a two-term Labor government. Um, you know, it, it looked like we we're entering a more volatile period, perhaps of the kind that occurred in the 70s and mm. early 80s, um, you know, during that period of economic difficulty then where, again, you had one-term governments come and go from time to time at the state level. Uh, but we and, haven't had a one-term government at the federal level since 1929, I think. No, we've had some pretty close calls. Yeah, first we? term, yeah. first term governments generally yeah. get taken very close yeah. at, at their yeah. election. So when they seek re-election the first time, yeah. and you could see that with Hawke in eighty four, mm. you could see it with Howard in ninety eight, you could see it with Labor, in, uh, you know, with uh, sort of Gillard in twenty ten, mm. uh, you could see it with uh, Turnbull in twenty sixteen, and every single time they get pushed very close, but they manage to survive. Yeah, they do or have, um, but yeah, it, it it did look like. More turbulence, I think, and and I think that probably affected the way that many of us read Labor's prospects at this election. That that the idea of a, a two term government, particularly one that 
in all honesty, has been a pretty well, it was a shame. ramshackle yeah. affair, mm-hmm. hasn't it? And and you know, I think putting all that together, you didn't really need the polls to tell you that that Labor was in with a, a pretty strong chance of winning. So that's why I think it's been a shock for a lot of people and a surprise for many of us. And and one of the interesting things about it, right toward the end, was the death of Bob Hawke. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, discussion about what this meant for the election. Uh, did it stop the moment? You know, at the time, people were saying, well, this has stopped any momentum for the coalition. It's reminded people that Labor can be a good government, good governing party, that it can do good economic policy, it can do good budget management, all these sort of things. That was the speculation at the time. doesn't seem to have had any effect. It made, made me think, made me reflect afterwards that perhaps, perhaps it was only a certain class of people who were really thinking along those lines, you know, people who are very, very engaged in in politics, people in the academy, people in, you know, journalists, um, but ordinary people perhaps not so, you know, inclined to kind of think that deeply about it uh, in the last days of the election campaign. Yeah, I mean, I was asked by ABC Radio, I think, you know, about the possible, not ABC, actually it was ABC Online, about possible effects. I thought they'd be very slight, if any. I mean, it just seemed to me be, to be very late in the campaign. By that stage, four million people had voted mm. anyway before yeah. the pre-polling. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just seemed to me implausible, really, that you'd have significant numbers of people changing their votes in, in that sort of um, situation. I mean, it's a kind of reminder of, I guess, the, the almost fictional quality of a lot of the, the, the commentary that goes on, I think particularly during an election campaign. You know, it's I mean, we call yeah. it speculation, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of it's sort of fictional. I mean, you know, you could create a, a, a powerful fiction around the idea that the death of Bob Hawke at that particular point in the campaign was going to lead to a surge to the Labor Party. Similarly, around the, um, you know, Bill Shorten show, uh, showing of emotion mm. uh, over the, the attacks over his, on yeah. him via his his mother. Again, a, a, yeah. a very intricate fiction was kind of um, elaborated around that incident in which he'd finally shown, you know, his true self, his authentic self, the real Bill, if you like, mm. and that, that, you know, this was going to provide all the, the momentum to bring Labor to victory. And, you know, I mean, I'm generally sceptical of that kind of thing, but it's striking how powerful those sorts of narratives are, you know, in, in a, 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 I guess, an environment of uncertainty during a campaign. Yeah, it's what a very I, good point. One of the big things that framed that narrative, Jill, was, was of course, the polls. Um, yep. You know, that, in fact, that was the, 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 the big conditional kind of uh, uh, condition-setting uh, aspect of the election. We were all reading those polls. They were all telling the same story. And, of course, they were all wrong in the end. What, what, what happened there? Oh, well, here's, you know, here's my answer in 25 words or less. Um, I'm going to come back to it. I wanted to mention just on what Frank said, Jim Chalmers on election night said that the the whole Bill's mum story hurt him and that we knew then that it, it was probably lost. And I thought that's a quick kind of post hoc narrative change, you know, at least sleep first and then we'll come back to it. <laughs> um, on the polls, there's n- obviously no easy answer. Um, everyone wants an easy answer. Polling is really, really tough. And I say this a little bit to justify my own job because um, this is the core of what I do is running surveys. Um it's very, very hard to get 2,000 people to respond to surveys who actually reflect the population. Yeah, it's getting that representative slice of the electorate. And we will say that things have been, you know, we've we've adjusted the sample to reflect um, 
educational benchmarks and and location. You know, we've got rural and urban. We've got 50% women, 50% men in the sample, all of these things. But what we're not getting is something unobservable, something cognitively different about people who respond to surveys to people who don't. So this is the fundamental problem that we have with polling. It's very, very hard to engage people. It's hard to reach them because people don't have landlines. People don't answer their mobiles if they don't know the number. Uh, I don't. Mm. Um, we tr- we've, we try text messaging in advance to say, hey, we're going to be calling you. It's just a survey. Don't, you know, please don't freak out. That works a little bit. Uh, we don't necessarily know if we're calling people from the right state because it's on mobile. Uh, a lot of companies are going to on these online panels. So you basically um, advertise for people who want to join your your pool of respondents. Then you get an even more skewed. Yeah, you can see the methodological weakness in that straight away. Well, yeah, you you would think so. Well, the vulnerability. At you least, can adjust though. it though for for. Well, you think you can, yeah. On census characteristics, yeah, right? The yeah. observable stuff. But yeah. there's still something different yeah. about people who see an sure, ad sure. Or, or get an email, an unsolicited email. Yes, if you go email. back to the old model of, say, four or five election, elections ago uh, when uh, you could literally just use the phone book and they would do a geographical spread and they totally. would ring – you know, and they'd bring two thousand people to end up with a twelve hundred sample, uh, and yep. and it could be, and most people who you would ring would would take the time to answer it because they weren't being besieged with other telemarketing. Absolutely, uh, and they tended to, oh, you know, they've heard about these polls. Yeah, I'll give that a go. And the baseline in the population, like the average Australian, was more interested in politics than they are now. So what we're getting, I think, is not polarisation so much ideologically or in partisan terms, but people who care and people who don't care. And people who don't care are going to tune out more and more. And people who do care, the people who were fascinated by Bob's, Bob Hawke's death and the effect of that and then rewrite this, constantly rewriting this narrative, they're not necessarily getting smaller, but they're only getting more engaged. So we sort of have this reinforcing effect. Also on the polls, I, I think we'll find that um, the companies have very, very much uh, what we call herded. Um, they've looked at each other's responses. The the data that they show, so the final figures that they release are never the figures that show up in the raw data. Yeah. And that's what I mean about those adjustments on census characteristics. Um, and then, of course, there's the issue of how it's all reported, which is, you know, how badly. How, how, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look, as someone who did that job for a long time, and a, you know, when the polls came in, I was had a guaranteed front page and all that. Right. Um, it, it's a nice it, narrative. It, well, it is, and in a democracy, it, it stands to reason that we're going to be interested in what voters think uh, in between elections and how how you know how governments are tracking how particular policies, you know, whether they're popular or not. But I was listening to one pollster the other day making the point that instead of reporting the numbers. 5149 when there's 8% undecided perhaps it should be reported as 4745 with 8% yet to vote yeah. and i thought mm. i think this is one of the lessons that we are coming to now that that's a real could, structural difference yeah you could say then that the whoever's on the 47 is still leading you know labor is 47 45 up but there are 8% of people yet to decide Who could break and if they way. break more than you know 50% one way they could determine this election so and, that's a real difference um, that we've got at the moment is more people who I don't and I don't think they're undecided, but they say they're undecided because they're not sure how they're going to vote. Except they're not going to vote for a major party. Mm, yeah. So I I vote minor party because I have 
kind of trying to send this message to the major parties and I'm sure they they really care. Um, but I will usually vote for a minor party or an independent, but I don't know which one until I get in there. Oh, that's interesting. And that's that's me using anecdotal evidence to try to, you know, cast a story about polls and it's it's absolutely what I'm, you know, what I hate. But I think there's something to that. We're not used to having 25% of the population vote for a minor party or an independent. And that's a sort of structural difference in how people are going to be answering polls. Is there also an issue to do with the the, the declining numbers that are actually just wedded to one of the parties? Yep, so absolutely. That, affect, that affects the reliability? Because they were stable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's nothing much to measure, I suppose, in that sense, once upon a time. So when we, had, yeah. when we had lifetime voters, liberal voters, Labor voters, no one in between, um, you could, if you got a funny poll result, you could sort of go, oh, no, my gut instinct is this isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're still using that instinct, that gut instinct, but it's not reflective of the population. Well, we've got a two-party, we've got a two-party preferred system, right? So, yep. the, so most of the votes, even if you vote minor party, it ends up in the column of a major party. But you know, going to Frank's point, if those constellations are breaking down, those big constellations, then it makes the result so potentially variable, depending on what those people do with their their second and subsequent preferences. If they're going to minor parties, if they're breaking away from the party of their parents, which was, of course, you know, the big kind of, uh, I guess, you know. Socialisation. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It was the big habit of, of Australian politics yep. for a long time. But it does make picking the result very much contingent on what happens with those preferences. Well, I'm going to sink the boot in here a little bit. We don't have a good culture in Australia of uh, genuinely and open and openly um, scrutinising our polling methods and our polling results. I think we're about to. <laughs> if you, well, yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Well, most um, companies don't release their methodology, right? And uh, it, Yeah, they don't, and that's true, and that's a, a really fundamental problem as well. But there's it, it is a cultural thing as well. So there's a massive conference on of pollsters and survey companies in the US. And, um, you know, there'll be 3,000 people in a in some awful kind of downtown hotel. But every big company, Gallup, Pew, um, you know, any sort of one that you can think of in the US is there sharing their methodology, talking about things that they've tried and that have failed. So they're basically saying to their competitors, don't bother with this. We've tried it and it's not worth it. It's unreliable, yeah. There's this incredible social capital between these companies and that doesn't happen here. And That's I think a really it's interesting point. We're a small market. In Britain, there was there, the polling council uh, in Britain who was led by um, a, an academic, John Curtis, uh, ran a really big um, you know, internal review that was very open, very transparent after the last election. Um there's pushes underway already to do something similar here, but I am pretty. I'm I'm pretty uh, pessimistic about the the chances of of our big polling companies getting on board. Jill, can I ask you? I I have seen a lot of discussion about this on social media about um, social desirability bias, which is often called the shy Tory or shy Trump voter. Now, um, as a political scientist, this, this, you know, I, I kind of want some evidence uh, before I, I believe this. So, so what can you tell us about this? Is this? I mean, I think it's true? a very Twitter thing, right? Imagine, imagine admitting that you vote liberal. So, like this, a, you just, know, just to clarify, this, this is uh, people telling not, not that they intend to vote Tory or they end up voting Conservative, but they don't tell a pollster. They either lie about who they're voting for, or you know, who they intend to vote for, or they don't answer the phone. Mm. And there was something. 
look, again, I'm going on on instinct, right? First of all, there's there's very little evidence for this sort of scientifically, right? Um, as I say, particularly in the US, these companies are constantly reviewing their methods, evaluating themselves, and they haven't been able to find any real evidence of this. Intuitively, are there demographics of people who are both more likely to vote, say, for Trump and who are also more likely to not answer their phone? Probably, right? There's probably some underlying factor that can predict both of those things. But the idea that we're embarrassed to say we might vote for the coalition, I think, is is both kind of the attitude that probably got Labor where they are. Is it possible that it's and, uh, it, to, the, to the extent that I can imagine that I can imagine it perhaps only in the youth demographic where it is pretty unfashionable to be voting for the Conservatives. I mean, there was a piece in the um, in the Herald a couple of days after the election from a young woman saying, "Why uh, I voted for coalition? Yeah, why I voted for the coalition?" Yeah. And, and it was full of kind Some of defences. Selective history going, there. <laughs> yeah, but it was interesting because the very fact that that piece was written that and that it was run spoke to a, um, I, I suppose, a consensus among younger people about things like climate change and uh, you know fairness and you know housing uh, policy and all these sorts of issues that are important to younger voters. So. Is it possible that some younger voters who were inclined towards Scott Morrison were perhaps not inclined to say so publicly? Maybe, but young people don't answer their phone anyway. So this isn't something that we would see have it. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Systematic effect on on the eventual polls. Um, but it's such a nice narrative, right? It's, it lends itself to Twitter, like lying conservatives, you know. Um, wrecking Secret everything, stories, yeah, yeah, re- wrecking everything for us. We expected a Labor win because you all lied to us. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I and, reckon and I'm they probably, do most of the lying when they get into Parliament. I'm not just talking prob- about the Tories either. <laughs> I'm probably being a little bit, you know, dogmatic about this and a little bit maybe emotional. But uh, no, it really annoys me. It's patronising, and I think there are there is some intuition to it, but it's it's not a massive effect. Thank you. You're listening to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. You've just been listening to Jill Shepard, Frank Bongiorno and Maria Taflaga. We'll be back in just a moment. I think we'll just look at uh, when we come back, uh, the authority that Scott Morrison has and whether that represents an opportunity for him and then have a look at uh, what's happening on the Labor side. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right. Well, welcome back. Let's just go to Scott Morrison now. He's, uh, as, as we discussed in the first half, he's, uh, you know, looked at his, um, he's named his ministry now. But 
this is a government that's been elected largely uh, on the on the basis of not being Labor. Its campaign was about don't risk it with Labor, don't trust Bill Shorten. Uh, it was very cleverly targeted in that sense, and obviously it worked. One of the few things the government is committed to is its uh, income tax changes, uh, big income tax cuts uh, in 2022, 2024, and there's going to be an argument about that. And we've discussed there's an NDIS minister, which is also interesting to see what happens there. But um, what, what do we think about what else could the government have on, on the agenda? And is the, the absence of, um, of any particular manifesto, is that in some ways, I mean, it's obviously a danger for a government. It could become directionless and things could drift. But on the other hand, is it also an opportunity for Scott Morrison to, uh, you know, to effectively write a new story for the Conservatives on, you know, on a blank page? What do you think, Frank? Oh, I think we overestimate the need for an agenda when you come to office. Um, we seem to imagine that, you, you know, parties that win governments, I mean, Whitlam's kind of the, the, the template, you know, years of policy development. And that's how you go. But, you know, look at Hawke in 83. Have it read, read, read his, um, you know, his policy speech at the Sydney Opera House in February 83. You won't find much there to indicate even what he was going to do in the first year, and let that, alone and that, beyond and, it. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. a very good point. That was one of the, um, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, Bob Hawke dying on the second last day of campaigning and what effect that had. But surely that was one of the things that was missed was that, yes, the, the Hawke period was a great reforming period in Australian governance, but not much of that was mentioned in the 83 election campaign, was it? Or subsequent election campaigns yeah. in a lot of ways. They just did stuff yeah. and then, and then you know, looked for vindication, looked for, for legitimacy afterwards. And the lesson there is yeah. that is that important reform, and we're not actually advocating here that electorates be lied to, but the lesson there is that governments can do difficult reform. Doing difficult reform from opposition as I think Labor has just found out, is a very perilous proposition. Well, I think I think I think there is a couple of sort of uh, like finessing points here. So so one like Austra Australian politics is sort of obsessed with this idea of mandates, and there is like reams of academic literature about this. And really, it doesn't matter. Like if you have executive power and you have the numbers on the floor and you can ram it through the Senate you get what you want, right? Um, so I think this is kind of, in some ways, a bit of a moot point, whether or not the government has a mandate to do any of these things, uh, it will do what it needs to do. I think there is a difference between thinking about what you want to do with government power and roughly the direction you want to take the nation um, and potentially like front-loading all of this stuff at an election. Because I think if you don't do any thinking as an opposition, you run into problems. And that's exactly what we've seen in the last two governments. I mean, John Howard famously ran a small target campaign in 1996, but, you know, he, he profited from a party that spent, you know, 13 years being interested in ideas, not having the resources really to think mm. through ideas. But this is a government. But this is a government being returned. This isn't an opposition getting into office with absolutely. Well, I, yeah. that's a good point. But <laughs> yeah. in some ways, it did feel like an opposition. It ran True. like an opposition. Mm. It ran against Labor and Labor's big agenda. Uh, it mm. essentially didn't put much forward. It just said, "Look, it's a big risk going to Labor." And 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 Scott Morrison was. As we've discussed, you know, earlier in this podcast, it was he was always the underdog in in the public's eyes. So there were he did really run like an opposition leader, and um, and in a sense, um, he proved the point. 
I think this is a real opportunity for Scott Morrison. Like, you know, there's a lot of commentary in the papers on on, on sort of polarised on both sides, sort of like, you know, this is a vindication and we're going to have like 10 years of conservative rule on one hand. And then on the Labor side, it's kind of like, well, this is sort of like the historical parallels we saw in, you know, 1980 and 1969 and, and, um, and 2004. Well, actually, it's, it's, it's potentially neither. Yeah. It, it is just an opportunity for Morrison to have... Um, have a chance to assert his authority over his party and ultimately make good decisions. If he can't make good decisions with his team, then it won't be a good government. It's, how, as, it's simple as that. How long do you reckon he can keep the party room together? Because there's all this talk about, you know, his authority now. He's maybe not policy mandate, but his mandate within the party room. Um, you know, he's a godlike figure. We we all owe him, um, you know, our, our jobs and and whatnot. And certainly I think Howard enjoyed that. He enjoyed that kind of, um, you know, I sort of guess. mythic status almost amongst his, his uh, certainly the class of 96 were always, you know, grateful to John Howard for getting him into parliament. Absolutely. That kind of gratitude and, and that feeling that, you know, he he bestowed a parliamentary career on them. Does Morrison have that? Because I don't know that he does massively. Um, and well, how he's on long... the way. I mean, he single-handedly, I think the thing that, you know, can be said about this election campaign is that it was down to Scott Morrison. And it's it, absolutely it, true. It, it, one of the lessons of this well, may be... a really good party machine that clearly got, like, some last-minute money and ran a really good and, campaign, yeah, which he remembered to thank at the very end there. Yeah, they were always there, and Clive yeah. Palmer helped a lot, and, you know, the I Australians front Mid- page helped, helped a lot. A lot yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. But I, I also think one of the lessons here is that a politician with really good instincts who who has a lot of self-belief, is still a very powerful thing in a democracy, even with all the polling, even with all the artifice and the technology. Scott Morrison's belief really drove this. I mean, Sinodin has made the point on election night that the moment Scott Morrison became leader, he believed he could win the election. And we know belief is a big thing for Scott Morrison, you know, his faith and everything. But there was, there's, a, there's, an, there's an absolutely sort of um, fundamental self-belief there as well. And, and it was evident in the way he carried himself in debates, the way he carries himself in interviews. He's, he's you know, he's a kind of a Jeffrey Boycott-like figure, not particularly exciting, <laughs> but you can't get him out. There's, there's an obvious confidence in himself, right, uh, without being kind of cocky and arrogant, but just, a, a, yeah, I hadn't thought about it in terms of like a self-belief, but I, and, and it shows up as authenticity. But I just... I I can't quite swing 180 degrees from saying before the election that the Liberal Party has fundamental problems ideologically and factionally to now saying, oh, it'll all be okay, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I think that the terrain remains very difficult for the government simply for the fact that it, it is not, um, you know, the mid-2000s where we've got a once-in-a-century mining booms windfalls just rolling into treasury. Like there are actually real choices that have to be made if the government wants to keep its surplus and and navigate Australia through a very kind of choppy set of economic 
waters. However, I, I think that these things, you know, Frank was talking about narratives and fictions and myth-making, and, and Morrison is now potentially the beneficiary of exactly this kind of a moment. And I think it really is, it just behooves him if he's lucky and makes the right decisions in the early part of his term, then that will reinforce his party room's faith in him and may give him the capacity to sort of say, well, we have to do a little bit more on climate change or we have to do this. Maybe not, though. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Well, maybe Angus not, Taylor doesn't seem like he's a particularly kind of forward-leaning guy when it comes to climate change, and he's now been given that responsibility along with energy. So, you know, they, those two portfolios that were separated in a big symbolic gesture when Morrison took over from Turnbull have been reunited, but they've been reunited under someone who's, you know, pretty uh, pretty sceptical about the whole climate change argument, it seems. So I would have thought that is where the tension point is, the most critical tension point is for the coalition. It's in the hands of someone from the conservative side of the party. Mm. I don't think he's going to be doing anything that's all that adventurous. And if anything, we're seeing cracks emerge on the Labor side with Tony Burke kind of talking about perhaps walking away from a market mechanism on their side. So perhaps they're going to get a leave pass here and uh, this would be a fracture point, but maybe it won't be. Maybe, but uh, and there's a lot made of the moderates who've left and certainly in Pine, the leader of the moderates has left. But with the exception of Bishop, all the moderates who have left have been replaced by people who seem similar, similarly um, moderate ideologically. Uh, certainly James Stevens, who's taken Christopher Pine's uh, seat of Sturt, is, is of a similar mould. What will damage the moderates, I think, is not having an obvious leader. Um, but also the the thing that struck me with the announcement on Sunday was that in in losing Fifield and Sinodinus, he's lost a lot of his uh, ballast. Yeah, ballast and, and sort of authoritative supporters. I, I agree with that parliament. because if he if the analogy is to be made with with John Howard, then who better to have around than John Howard's former chief of staff? Arthur Sinodino. Who's very well regarded. Very and... well regarded, can speak across both sides of the party. Uh, and I think that will be his uh, his um, you know his great skill in Washington, that he can speak to both sides and that he is a very reasonable and uh, respected person. There's but he's all... a loss to them. And, and there's also the issue of just the, the number who jump ship before the election. So, you know, you've got to add these two to that great crew that went, you know, in the, in the lead up to the election. And, and they it, lost Tony Abbott in the election. And, and Abbott in the election, which is something we probably should discuss. I mean, it seems like probably, that was years ago. There's, there's probably something that helps uh, helps Morrison, I suspect. It was one of the few things yeah. I got right before but, in my commentary was I said, look, you know, the best <laughs> result for them, given that that stage mm, like a loss yeah. was happening, was a narrow loss but losing mm. Tony Abbott. I thought maybe losing Dutton as well. But Fifield delivered the, the, the leadership to Morrison. Morrison. And so I assume that this is a kind of thank you, um, this soft landing. But that I think the Senate's a pretty soft landing the whole time, isn't it? Well, that's true. <laughs> oh come on, Senators work hard. I would tell, I, I, I would tell Mitch that to his face. So I don't feel but bad I, saying I it. I wonder if there's a parallel with. I mean, you look at those Keating ministries of the early nineties. Um, they look a bit at times lightweight, and certainly compared to to uh, you know what had preceded yeah, them. Yeah, nineteen eighty-three. I, I do particularly from ninety-three uh, onwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm you know when Button had gone and people like that. Um, and so I, I do wonder, you know, um, is the ballast there? Is is the talent there given the, the number who've been leaving? And, yeah. and here's another two. Yeah, it's know. a very good point. But one of the things we have here, and we're always eager to uh, engage with our audience, and people can get to us uh, via Twitter on Apps Policy Forum or our Facebook group, uh, Policy Forum Pod, 
and our email is podcast at policyforum.net. And one of the uh, um, questions that's come into us this week is from Annalise Taylor, and she's interested in hearing about how complex policy areas can be addressed in ways that bring younger and older voters together rather than wedging them apart. For example, she says, how do you address intergenerational inequality without being without being seen, seen as a zero-sum game? What do you think, uh, Maria? I think I'm going to disappoint Annalise and say I'm not sure you can in an election campaign. <laughs> I th- I just think that um, it, you know, everything gets reduced down to really simple messages, um, and you probably just need to have some pat lines like "If you have a go, you'll get a go," um, mm. and and wait for government. I mean, it's one of the ironies that elections, which are supposedly the high point of democracy, are not a good time to discuss policy really or to discuss policy changes and to sell them. I mean, it's a febrile environment and it's more about values, isn't it? And um, and as you say, kind of cliches rather than getting into the Unfortunately, yeah. Mm. yeah. And in a period of scarcity, you know, it probably is a zero-sum game. How do you get around that? Um, we're not entering a period of, it would appear, of, of you know, significant growth or rapidly rising productivity of the you know, 1990s style or whatever. Um, so, you know, th- there are going to have to be, as I think Maria might have said earlier, some pretty tough decisions made. Mm. And we can be reasonably certain that younger voters um, are probably not going to get as good a hearing as older ones on, on the, a kind of head-counting basis as far as I can see. Yeah, the, the numbers aren't in favour of younger Indeed. voters at the moment. Yeah. I'm with Mark. I, I thought... I, I talked for weeks about how great Labor strategy was. Well, so did I. It's leaning into the zero-sum game. It's saying, yeah, I we are going to lose voters. But, you know, um, Bowen was, you know, uh, sort of unapologetic about this. Mm. Um, but what I think they didn't do was sell the benefits at the other end hard enough. Well, I it think struck it was me that assumption. there was always a problem with you've got a diffuse group that is going to benefit, and you know, there's going to be this society-wide benefit from the, you know the, this money to spend in social in, and redistribute through social programs. But you create a very specific set of losers. And as a journalist, let me tell you, whenever you could put a face to a particular story, <laughs> then that's that you know that elevates it up the bulletin or gets it onto the front page of the paper. And people were stepping forward saying, "I'm a you know I'm a part pensioner and I rely on eighteen." Hundred dollars a year in franking credit refunds. They're gone. To send presents to my grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, and they're gone. And I've only got an income of thirty-two thousand dollars all up, or whatever it is. And and that and people go, wow, that just doesn't seem fair. And what's Labor's answer to it? Well, Labor's answer to it is suck it up. You shouldn't have done it. You know, yeah, that. and that's that's where I think Labor really failed was was that there are yes, that it's a it's a diffuse group of winners, but they've also got faces. Yeah. You know, it's the thirty-five-year-old couple with a baby who have saved a hundred you know have saved fifty thousand dollars and still can't buy a house mm. while old mates got five houses and yeah, getting the trouble with that credits. is they they were really shy about that because what they didn't want to have is this, this confirm this narrative that house prices were going to come down. This is the great conundrum of Australian politics. Indeed, it happens in the US and other places as well, where you talk about homelessness, you talk about housing stress, you talk about a whole class of people being locked out of the housing market as first home buyers. You know the solution. The solution to it is to have house prices come down, but that is the biggest asset of you know Most the of bulk us. of voters, yeah. and uh, you don't want to admit that they're. 
you know, their uh, the sort of lodestar of their life financially is about to be devalued. It's a bit like the old debate we used to have about interest rates. If you had money, oh, if you had money in the bank, yeah, keep them at fifteen percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, and interest rates are now going to be below one percent. I mean, to suggest that these are like smooth times ahead for you know the Australian economy is is delusional, and so. It's not that I don't think that policy discussions are going to go away because po- problems are, are are on the horizon or, or right with us right now, but perhaps it's just a, a conversation about, well, you know, the negative gearing policy, which they took to the previous election, this is the kind of government we are. We're the kind of government that is going to think creatively and nimbly to try to address some of these problems. We're going to use just this as the way we sell, that is what our values are and the kind of party we are. And maybe that's the way we have to do it. Because yeah. all the big issues that they're facing are zero sum. How, like yeah. housing, climate change, um, you know, I guess superannuation generally. Yeah. The, 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 this is, it seems to me that the aggregate of Labor's policies as, as much as anything else was a problem. Had they, for example, left the franking credits off, the negative gearing thing, they'd already taken that to an election once. I think they could have uh, you know, survived that. So there was this sort of the quantum of change they were proposing mm-hmm. became a problem. It's too much. Uh, and when you look at now, the government's now about to do a review into retirement incomes. That That's probably what an incoming Labor government should have done, out of which could have come Promised a recommendation a yeah. uh, to, uh, to, to, and to grandfather it, to phase out uh, franking credits for those people who haven't been paying income tax in that year. Because it, let's face it, it's a, it's a policy that never should have happened in the first place. Um, just quickly before we go to Labor, and we've, we're sort of uh, running long here because there's just so much interesting to talk about, but um, what does anyone think about uh, the the way, going back to this idea of the blank page, there's a few things that Scott Morrison does have the potential to make serious progress in, partly because he's a conservative. I'm thinking particularly the NDIS and, and also Indigenous. We, we mentioned that Ken Wyatt's the first Indigenous person to be in that portfolio and for it to be in cabinet. Um, so Indigenous recognition in the constitution, always thought of or long thought of as a Labor priority, not so much on the conservative side, but maybe a conservative government is actually better positioned to to deliver this. Um, there's also uh, interesting, uh, I think, challenges for Scott Morrison in foreign policy. We know he's going to Honiara on his way to to London, so he's making a gesture in in the Pacific and that has implications for Australia's I guess you'd call competition with China in the Pacific. So, um, Frank, uh, what do you he's think? hard to read, isn't he? Because you know we haven't had a lot of clues since he became leader of what he he stands for. So he'll, he'll flirt momentarily with the idea of doing something around Aboriginal or Indigenous affairs, and then kind of moves on to mm. something else, you know, um, power prices or something. So he's he is difficult to read. I mean, there has been a group of conservative. MPs and and academics who've been working on the recognition issue, largely I think centred on the Australian Catholic University and so on, and I think uh, Julian uh, Lisa, yeah, Julian in, in Lisa, the federal yeah. parliament. So, you know, there, there is a, a kind of as as there was with the Republic actually, a, a kind of conservative um, theorisation, I suppose, of that going on, um, which he may draw on perhaps. Mm. Um, and and the appointment of Wyatt is interesting. I mean, it does, I think, suggest uh, the you know, possibility of some sort of commitment to some kind of change. Well, there. one just hopes yeah. that that gesture, just like the mm. gesture of having seven women in the in mm. the in the uh, 
ministry in the cabinet that that's not the actual story itself mm-hmm. you know that, that's the you hope that's the window to to mm-hmm. to some new opportunities some new reform but rather he, than just being the story itself but he is an advertising man after all yeah so we'll just have to wait and see yeah, it's interesting. Um, Hugh White was making the point uh, about this uh, emphasis on the Pacific uh, that Australia needs to, if it is going to go to these countries and 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 talk to them about you know what what Australia can do, that we need to be talking to them about issues that concern them rather than talking to them about issues that concern us in respect of the region. And you know, he named, for example, climate change as an issue a great. You know, great import to Pacific nations, and of course, not one that uh, the coalition's been strong on. So, I think John Alexander said they should move to higher ground. Yeah, there, uh, maybe. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. the backbench can shut up. I think at this point. <laughs> well, Peter Dutton had some. Yeah, well, some that's true. About the ministry can well. shut up too. Yeah. The mic was on. Yeah. Let's let's go quickly to Labor. Right, Albanese has been anointed as the new leader. Um, Richard Miles um, as as deputy, so they're no longer. Do they have a woman in that in that uh, duo running the uh, the opposition? Uh, and they're going about now, you know, the process, that messy process of deciding who's going to be on the front bench. Um, seems to me one of the really big challenges, Albanese is making this point, that we're not going to change. We're going to review our policies but not our values. Again, climate change, very interesting value, I think, for the Labor Party. So um, I, I would – think Shorten's values are quite different to Albanese's core values. Uh, They're the values that told Plibersek and Claire O'Neill that they, Mm. you know, wouldn't really cut it. Um, I think Claire O'Neill's fairly honest response that she was told she'd be good at the at the public facing part of the deputy role, but that was it. Um, I thought her performance on uh, Insiders uh, on Sunday morning just showed how good she is. Uh, oh, as yeah. I noticed on many other occasions, but you know it was a very polished performance, and you sort of thought, well, what really? What this- do you want? You know, <laughs> what what more are you sort of looking for? Well, well, we know, right? It's that it's internal power and internal I think, patronage. I think the new leadership selection process is actually um, showing up a couple of interesting things here. Like, for example, you know, they don't want to have this five week messy ballot. Mm. So now they've actually basically just sort of um, shadow boxing and factionally mm. kind of bullying each other into yep. into yeah. stepping down. So it's actually even less democratic because you don't even have a party they've, they've, room for They've reverted right? to type, really. They had yeah. these rules that yeah, were supposed absolutely. to sort of yeah. break that and they've just found a way, as is the Labor mm. Party's want, to uh, <laughs> you know, revert to type. Because it was based on really a British Labor model up, up to a point. And, of course, British terms are five years. So maybe you can afford to muck around for a few months. And, indeed, mm. I, I mean, I remember back in 2010 I was living in Britain and the leadership campaign involved five candidates and it went on for months. It was and, 50, over 50 meetings around the country involving these candidates. And with, it delivered Corbyn. Uh, uh, no, no, it delivered um, Ed Miliband. Oh, it, it, it delivered right, Ed Miliband yeah. um, with Har- Harriet Harman, who wasn't a candidate, as interim leader during that period. These are three-year terms. Um, mm. the, the transactional costs of, of even four or five weeks are quite significant and I suspect that's had a, a big effect here. There yeah. are benefits, though, that we oh, don't talk about so. and one yeah. of them is to air a lot of this stuff, yeah. right? Because people won't remember in a year that, you know, that Labor were at each other's throats. I think you have to do this bloodletting, but they don't, right, Maria? They just, they just uh, you know, kind of bunker down. 
Yeah, I, I actually think this is a quite a disturbing trend long term for internal mm. party democracy and just for the, the health of the, the Labor Party, right? Why would you join? Well, yeah, I mean, because mm. you, you supposedly get this vote, but now you don't actually. So, yeah. I mean, they should just reduce the campaign period and go to an online voting platform or something like that. It's not like they can't speed this process up to reflect the fact that um, the length of the, the, the term is different. And, I mean, perhaps you just make it three weeks or two weeks. So on values, I think that's, you know, that haven't sort of started with a, you know, a, a sort of glorious, you know, return to talking about Labor values. Albanese talked about them in his first speech, but even even across the course of that 20-minute sort of uh, introduction, he went from, and I don't know, I'm sure you watched it, Frank, but he sort of went from being, well, I'm a Labor, you know, I'm traditional Labor, I shouldn't even be here, you know, I had to sort of work my way up to talking about, oh, we'll talk to business, we'll talk to everyone. It, I mean, it ran the gamut. Of, it's, it's, of really interesting. it's really interesting that we have a, a situation where a right-wing Labor leader has supposedly dragged the party a long way to the left and now a left-wing party leader is about to drag it back toward the right. I don't know what voters are meant to make of that. No. <laughs> it confirms what a lot of people have been saying about factionalism in the ALP for some <laughs> years, actually. I think you're Rodney Cavalier, for instance, yes. that uh, it is about patronage and not very much about ideology anymore. Yeah. I think. I mean, we all sit here and sort of bag Corbyn. I... Yeah, Corbyn might not win government, but geez, he's been good for the Labor Party in Britain. You know, they've I got don't new know members. That he's been all that good for Britain, frankly. Not that good for Britain. I don't think he's been good for Britain. I think his I think his equivocation on Brexit has been appalling. I mean, it's easy for me it's, to say it's sitting his here, view. but he, he just doesn't like Europe. <laughs> I yeah, know. And, I know. And, and neither do a lot of his <laughs> constituents. <laughs> you know, ne- neither does a lot of his base. And I think that's totally fine. Let's not blame Corbyn. Let's blame Cameron. Well, right. yeah, that's just true. If we're going to blame someone, it's Cameron. Yeah, this is like when we I don't, Well, I, I guess yeah. we, we can argue about that. I, all I'm saying is I don't give <laughs> Labor a leave pass for the way it's, um, you know, sort of walked both sides of the oh, street absolutely. on this. I think it's been pretty shabby and the whole country's been let down by the parliamentary class, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. That's a whole other episode. That is a whole, a whole, other, other, a whole other, whole other episode. Look, thank and you. And our British producer loves hearing us talk about it. <laughs> Thank you, all of you, for joining Thanks, us Martin. today on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, Jill Shepard, Frank Bongiorno, and Maria Taflaga. And we'll be back next week, and uh, I guess we'll have a bit more uh, detail to talk about with what's happened with Labor and no doubt other events as well. So thank you all. Great. Thank you. See ya. Thanks. See ya.